Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, welcome to another edition of GodPod. It's um, great to have you with us if you're listening in to uh, this um, uh, edition, which is uh, the latest in our, um, uh, under, well, not quite total lockdown, but lockdown versions of GodPod. So we're all in different places. Uh, we can actually see each other on Zoom at the moment, but you can't see us because you're only listening to us. But it's great to have the, the original team here. So it's me, Graham Tomlin. It's great to have Jane with us, Jane Williams. Hello. And uh, Michael, Michael Lloyd from Oxford. Hello, yes, we're, we're all in different places geographically instead of theologically, which is usually the <laughs> way we're in different places. Absolutely oh, right. And uh, we have a very special guest today, and uh, we are delighted that we have um, Tom Holland with us. So um, Tom is uh, an author and historian and, um, uh, and also a cricketer, because Tom, Tom and I have sort of met, um, well, we met recently playing cricket, we met on other occasions as well. So, um, Tom, it's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for having me. How has your cricket season been? It's been a bit truncated, hasn't it? Uh, well, uh, it began terribly, because um, I, I got an inflamed Achilles, and um, Boris Johnson announced that there could be no cricket because the ball was a vector of disease. And I was absolutely delighted because I thought that if I can't play, then you know, I don't <laughs> want anyone else playing either. And then, of course, he did a typical U-turn and announced that everyone could play. So I dragged my, um, my aching carcass onto the pitch when I think we, we met you. We met oh, yeah, that's right. our team of uh, muscular Christians. <laughs> uh, I got absolutely murdered, but I'm happy to say that I'm gradually working my way um, back to full form. Form, uh, and we played a match on um, uh, on Tuesday, and uh, I got Matthew Hoggard, um, 2005 Ashes England hero, caught on the boundary. Oh, so well done. So 2020 hasn't been a total washout for me. <laughs> you remember that forever. I, because, I will, and go on about it as well. Because he did, he is capable of playing cover drive. He has once in his <laughs> career played a cover drive. As I've reminded everybody. <laughs> Just in case everyone's wondering, this game that Tom referred to, I wasn't even playing either because his Achilles was, was playing up. My back was terrible. I couldn't even play the game. So I was watching from the boundaries. So I have deep frustration of cricket this, this summer. But anyway, we, um, enough of cricket. We should get on to more. Definitely <laughs> enough of cricket. Yeah. <laughs> Jane usually bans sports, sports talk. <laughs> on the it's been polite at the moment, yeah. Yeah, you are. Exactly, that's right. But anyway. Um, we'll keep that up for long, Jane. No, stopping now. <laughs> Exactly. So politeness is banned. Um, uh, not entirely. So uh, uh, we uh, would love to talk today about uh, Tom's um, fairly recent book. Uh, it's been out for a little while now called uh, called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And um, uh, it's, uh, it's a really, really fascinating read. Um, quite a long one. It's good fun to read as it goes along. And um, I think all of us have read it. And uh, it's great to be able to talk to you, Tom, about um, the book. So um, those who are listening into um, GodPod today, some of you may have read the book, some of you don't. Um, you won't need to have read it to, uh, to um, benefit from this conversation because we'll try and um, uh, summarise how it goes on. But, uh, but Tom, I Then you need to read it after that, definitely. Exactly. Or well, at least buy it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so Tom, um, we'd love to know what sparked off the book in your mind. Where did, it, where did it come from? Is it something that's been gestating for a long time in your mind? What was the thing that made you want to write this book? Yeah, really, really about 20 years, which is when I started um, writing history. And I should emphasize that, that I'm not an academic, that I originally began as a, a novelist. Um, and it took me time to realize that I was in, I think, in the wrong gig. And the reason for that was that I discovered that actually the, the, the thing that really moved me, um, that I had inherited from my childhood and, and adolescent, was, was a passion for ancient history. Um, and so I began writing history for general market um, with a focus on uh, particularly the classical world. So the first book I wrote was um, called Rubicon, and as the name suggests, it was about the fall of the Roman Republic. Uh, and then I wrote a book about the, um, the Greco-Persian Wars, so that's Thermopylae, Salamis, that kind of stuff. Um, and the experience of um, trying to live in the minds of Julius Caesar and Leonidas, to, to imagine myself uh, like a legionary or, or, or a, a Spartan hoplite, um, which was I, I thought was absolutely essential to the entire project, um, I, I found it increasingly a kind of alienating one. Um, so the fact that um, Caesar, it is said, uh, killed a million Gauls and enslaved another million and seemed to have had absolutely no qualms about this whatsoever, and indeed to have um, regarded it as a feather in his cap. Um, while I could un understand how it was that um, uh, the Roman understanding of conquest and glory and power um, fed into that perspective, I, I found it a kind of alienating one. Mm. And likewise with the Spartans, there's something um, kind of brutally heroic about their, their stand at Thermopylae, and yet it's founded on assumptions about um, you know, that the Sparta was a slave state, it provided um, the moral inspiration for Hitler. Um, and, and so likewise, I found um, that there were huge reams of Greek experience that I likewise found alienating. And I increasingly came to the conclusion that um, any youthful sense I'd had that um, the Greeks or the Romans were comprehensible to us as a matter of form was hugely mistaken. That actually, the more I thought about the Greeks and the Romans, the stranger, the more distant, and the more unapproachable they came to seem. And almost everything about them that seemed familiar, in fact, wasn't. It was a delusion. And the more I reflected on that, the more I, I kind of thought, well, you know, what happened? Why, why are these people so different? And it was as fundamental as trying to use everyday English words, I don't know, like religion or secular, or um, homosexual, anything like this. And I, I realized that these were inadequate to what the Greeks and the Romans had thought. They were freighted with a kind of signification that, um, that had come from somewhere that was not Greek and Roman. Mm -hmm. And so I became <laughs> more interested in the question of where they had come from. And, um, a, a, a bit like when you you know you have an itch on the back and and it takes can take a bit of time to find it but then when you find it you, you know, it's hugely satisfying to scratch it. I, I increasingly came to the conclusion that um, that it was Christianity that had changed everything and um, 
I, I wrote a book um, about um, Christendom, Western Christendom in the 10th and 11th century, so around the, the, the time of the millennium, um, on the hunch that this had been a kind of key turning point in the, in, in the evolution of, of, um, of Christianity and therefore of the entire history of, of what we would now characterise as the West and felt that that thesis had been substantiated by what I wrote in that book. And so ever since I wanted to expand it and to see whether it was possible to trace the course of the way in which Christianity had transformed the, the Roman world and to follow the, the, the course of those various lines of influence over the course of the centuries, right the way into the present day. And so Dominion is my attempt to do that. And the thesis of the book really is that, um, I suppose that, that um, that everyone in the West is a goldfish swimming in in Christian waters um, and just as goldfish don't realize they're in a goldfish bowl so it can be very easy for people like me who who might not particularly have thought about Christianity to miss the degree to which we are actually Christian. Um, so in a sense the book was a kind of pilgrimage I suppose. I, I, I had a vague sense of where I was heading for but I didn't know that I would get there um, and I wasn't entirely sure what the course of the journey would be. Um, so, uh, so, so, so that's how I, that's how I came yeah. to, to, to write the book. Um, you you well, talk I'm, about I'm, how um, the more you studied the Greeks and Romans, the more alien they seemed. Uh, that must be disconcerting for a novelist who's well, trying I, to get their well, well, mind... I, Self into the mind of Caesar, or yeah. So, so I'd come, so so I'd come from writing novels to writing history, and one of the things that 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 kind of rather, perhaps I was being rather conceited, but made me think that despite not having studied history at university, I could write it, was that um, so many of of what we call the primary texts for ancient history are, are literary. So Herodotus or Thucydides or Tacitus, they're already incredibly shaped as literary texts. And in a sense, when we approach the Greeks and the Romans, we are approaching them as, as kind of literary artifacts. We, they're, they're mediated for us through texts. I mean, we supplement it with, with, with archaeology or whatever. But, but fundamentally, when we try and understand how the Romans saw the world, we have to do it through their texts. And I I'd, I'd kind of, you know, I'd, I'd studied these texts all the way through my life, but I hadn't engaged with them to the degree that I was obliged to when, when writing them. And I, I realized that all kinds of words and concepts and categories and assumptions that I had kind of elided with the ones that I had as a, a 20th, 21st century person. When I looked at them more closely, I came to realize, you know, I said, I said you know, these are faux me. Actually, when Catullus is writing about love or sex or whatever, his emotions, his understandings are nothing like mine at all at all and the more I, I, I kind of plunged into those waters yes I mean the more I felt that I was swimming in an A and C. And I had that... experience when I was in um, in Rome a little while ago and um, visiting the Colosseum and somebody standing in this this place where you know the entertainment was basically you you would go you know like today you would go to a football or you know a cricket or or you know a play or a concert or whatever but the entertainment in Rome was to go and watch gladiators kill each other or to see them kill wild beasts or the wild beasts to kill them or you'd go to the theater and you'd see slaves being routinely you know you know murdered because that was a kind of a rather dramatic way of sort of um, emphasizing the you know the tragedy of the um of the play and so on and just having that that real sense of the just the radical difference between that and the culture that we're in 
now that we we wouldn't even dream of that being entertainment in any kind of way and then think thinking of you know the christians who were also part of this kind of you know they were part of the victims of that 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 system as well and i guess my what, what i came to get to think is well, you know again a similar thing to you what shifted and the, the, the christian revolution seemed to be a sort of major part of the shift from that world to our world one of the, one of the um things that really sharpened it for me was after i'd begun the book um and i got commissioned to make a film for channel four about um about the Islamic State and what Islamic State fighters thought the theological justifications for what they were doing, what, what they were about. Uh, and as part of that, we went to a town called Sinjar, which was um, a center for the Yazidis. So a people who were condemned by Islamic State as, as devil worshippers, I mean, completely erroneously, but they were regarded as, as not being Christian, not being Jew, and worse, kind of worshipping the devil. So they were subjected, even by um, the standards of ISIS, to, to particularly brutal treatment. And um, Sinjar had been recaptured by the Kurdish militia at the time we went, a few weeks before. So it was, uh, ISIS were kind of very much within range, um, you know, artillery range. Um, and to stand in this town where men had been crucified and women had been enslaved and those who had been regarded as not sexually attractive enough to be enslaved had been killed, um, brought home to me um, the kind of brute realities of what life would have been like um, to, to, to be in the path of the legions, for instance, where, where this was taken for granted, the right of, of, of the legions to, um, to kill and enslave those who opposed them. Um, and to know that um, there were people within striking distance who had crucified their enemies and to know that the cross had represented for them what it had represented for the Romans, an emblem of their, of their power, an emblem of their right to torture to death those who, who, who had opposed them, um, opened up for me this kind of... Um, kind of existential abyss, I suppose. Uh, the sense of a world in which the cross had remained what it had been for the Romans, an emblem of torture, and not what it becomes with Christianity. And I think that, um, that in a way, it's a marker of, of Christianity's triumph and the, it's, its kind of cultural hegemony that so many of us, I'm sure not you, but, but, but certainly me and many others, have become desensitized to what the cross actually represents. Um, and so I came back from, from that expedition and, and rewrote the opening to focus on, on what the reality of crucifixion had been and to try and situate that reality at the heart of the book, the strangeness of it. And I was reading Paul when I was out there and everything he said about the strangeness of, of the cross. Uh, the strangeness of his message, the way that it was, you know, kind of um, a, a stumbling block to the Jews and madness to the Gentiles. And, and I felt that more completely than I had ever done before. Um, and, and then when I came back and I read Nietzsche, who, who, who likewise, I think as much, you know, as, almost as much as anyone since Paul is alert to that. Again, I, I, it, it had an impact on me far greater than when I'd, I, you know, I kind of read Nietzsche when I was 18, 19, as, as romantic intellectual teenagers tend to do. I remember and, doing and that, come, 
coming back to, to that, so Paul and Nietzsche probably are the two bookends in the you know, in, in Dominion. Um, Paul Paul features in the third chapter within um, uh, Nietzsche features in the, the third chapter from the end, and there's a kind of deliberate numerical symbolism there um, because I think that that those are the two writers who best, for my purposes, articulate precisely what it is that's strange. And I wanted in the book to try and make it seem strange. And, and I think one of the things that I found in, incredibly powerful about the book was, was that sense of the revolution that follows if the crucified Jesus is a symbol of, is the deepest symbol of, of God and therefore the deepest symbol of reality. And the whole, that all the structures that follow therefore, um, which make uh, Caesar rejoicing in, in, in killing people as a sign of his power, that make those now um, morally abominable to us. Yes, because lots of people say um, about Jesus, well, there's nothing exceptional about him because you know, lots of people became gods, lots of humans were thought to be God. Um, and there's a very obvious example in the figure of Augustus, who, who, whose cult uh, in the lifetime of Jesus and Paul is, is probably the fastest growing cult that the world had ever seen because it's promoted by the full might of the empire. And um, it, it seems very obvious that, um, you know, when Paul is writing to the Galatians, who appear to have been particularly particular enthusiasts for the cult of Augustus, that, that he's, he's engaging in the most astonishing blasphemy. I mean, his, his you know, Augustus is the son of a god. He's the son of Julius Caesar. Um, he, he, he's believed to ascend into heaven. He sits at the right hand of his father. He, he presides over an age of peace. Um, and, and, and yet here's Paul saying, no, it's not, it's not Caesar, it's this guy in an obscure corner of, of, of an obscure province who suffered the death of a criminal at the hands of the Roman state, who's God, who's the son of God. Um, and and the, the shock of blasphemy there is, is incredibly intense. And I, yes, I wanted to, 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 to try and, and, and convey that. And the kind, also, I think the, the percolating attempt by different generations of people to comprehend what that might mean. So I found um, the Cappadocian fathers, the, the um, generation of, of, of Cappadocian bishops, and, and indeed their, their extraordinary sister Macrina, um, in the, the, the generations that followed Constantine's conversion, incredibly moving. And their sense that, um, that if Christ had, uh, had, had chosen to suffer the death of a slave, then perhaps actually slaves were closer to God than the masters. And, you know, and that pushes um, uh, Gregory Vanessa to, to, to actually suggest that slavery itself as an institution is an abomination, uh, you know, long before um, the, the Quakers or the evangelicals come to that conclusion. And, and you, you, the, the sense that not everything is sorted out right at the beginning, that this, this, that, that, that in a sense, uh, um, the, the, the Christian message that of which Paul is 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 the first person we you know who who who, who who's accounts of that we have, that this is like an enormous depth charge laid beneath the foundations of the empire into which he's born. And that the ripple effects of that depth charge continue to reverberate out and out and out. And I think that they are still reverberating now. I mean, that 
idea itself, Tom, you need, because one of the, um, the new atheists, in some ways, they're also swimming in the sea, um, or at least they're the goldfish in, the, in the, the, the pond as well, that actually you can't understand new atheism without Christianity. It's almost, um, it, it, you know, the, the seeds of it actually even come from within the Christian revolution itself. We almost can't, you know, step outside it. Um, do you want to explore that one a little bit more and say, you know, why you think that, why that, you know, even Richard Dawkins is actually kind of owes what he does to Christianity? Because the, the, the general theme is the opposite, isn't it? The general paradigm in most people's minds is that it was these things come from the rejection of religion, that the Enlightenment, uh, that all, all that authority was left behind and uh, we, we were liberated to for human rights and for reason and for all those sorts of things. It, you're, going, you're setting a very different paradigm. Than yes, well, I, mean, I, I suppose the obvious question to ask about, um, dare I say, evangelical um, uh, atheists is to ask why, they, why it matters to them so much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why do, they, why, why, why do they feel the need to proclaim the fact that superstition must be banished and uh, false idols must be torn down and the people who, who, who walk in darkness must be brought into light? Um, and, and, and the very phrase enlightenment, you know, where is this, where is this idea come from that, that illumination has, has come upon you and you have seen the truth and you have banished superstition. And th th this of course is absolutely the language of, of the Protestant Reformation, but it's not just the language of the Protestant Reformation. It's also the, the, the language that, um, missionaries and saints in in the early years of the spread of, of Christianity across Europe are using so you know it's it's the same language that uh, Martin of Tours is using when he chops down trees uh, that Boniface is when he's hewing down the the, the, the great oak of Thor um, th this is exactly the language that they're using and and this language in turn ultimately derives from the Hebrew prophets and and they're teaching that um, you know the idols of of Babylon or Egypt are are, are nothing but stock or stone, um, and essentially, I, it seems to me that there is um, a, a sense in which atheism is a logical endpoint for a certain tra tradition within Christianity. Because what Chris, what Christianity does, as as the Hebrew prophets have done as well, is to attempt to 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 kind of drain sacrality from what most people had assumed was sacred. You know, a spring is a spring, a tree is a tree. Uh, the sense comes to to bed in that that the, the, the divine is not manifest within um, within the, the the natural world around you. That instead, it's somehow kind of up there in the sky. Um, and I think that um, perhaps, particularly within Protestantism, there is a sense in, in which um, banishing God completely. Ends up as a kind of logical conclusion to the to to, to the process that you're engaged in, uh, which is why I think that that, that Dawkins is, is you know is an incredibly Protestant figure ultimately. I mean he 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 completely has the tone of a kind of Victorian evangelical bishop. I think one of the things that I, I'm really left with, having read the book, Tom, is is the sense that as we um, go further and further from recognizing that, that um, what has been the revolution that's catalyzed and this change in attitudes, 
um, as people have less and less sense that it's Christianity that has actually changed the culture. Um, do you think that actually it's, that culture is going to start drifting again? That we'll, I mean, how, how do we make up our own, how do we as a society that doesn't recognize its, its Christian, um, continuing Christian influence, well, that, make moral decisions now? Yeah, I mean, that, that is the huge question. And that's why Nietzsche is such a, a, a crucial mm -hmm. figure in the book, because that is the question that he posed with a kind of um, almost terrifying degree of honesty. You know, his central argument is that ultimately you can't have Christian values without Christian belief. Um, God is dead. His corpse is so vast that the shadow it, it, it spills continues to, to, to seem to dance and to, to, to live. But, but that ultimately that, that corpse will decay and what will then happen? When Nietzsche wrote that, he didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, a few decades later, um, because the Nazis, um, however badly they misinterpreted Nietzsche, I, I don't think they misinterpreted him totally. And Nietzsche's contempt, not, not just for the idea of God, but specifically for the Christian God, his conviction that um, Christian values as well as Christian belief were contemptible his sense that um, Christianity was a slave morality, that, um, that it, had, it had gelded um, the blonde beast, that those who were strong, those who were powerful, those who were beautiful had been kind of denatured, had, had been made to cringe at the feet of those who were their inferiors, and that this was, this was a contemptible thing for, um, for humans to have to put up with. I think that that, that, that that completely informed the the emergence of fascism and specifically of Nazism. And the, the, the Third Reich was really the first European regime to commit itself, since the conversion of Constantine, to commit itself wholeheartedly to repudiation, not just of doctrinal Christianity, as the French revolutionaries had done, as the Russian revolutionaries had done, but to the, the whole uh, ethical and moral package. And there were really two core Christian teachings that the Nazis repudiated. The first was the idea that, uh, you know, which is embodied in the figure of the cross, that the slave will triumph over the master, that the weak will triumph over the strong, that empire will be humbled and the kingdom of God is greater. Um, so the Nazis consciously repudiate that. And of course, they, they, they repudiate the, um, the foundational idea in Genesis that all human beings are created equally in the image of God, um, which Paul then refines to, you know, that there is no Jew or Greek. The, the Nazis completely thought that there were Jews and Greeks and that allowing Jews and Greeks to become one would, 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 would destroy, the, you know, the, Hitler thought that the Greeks, you know, in the heyday of the classical civilization um, had, had come from the North, were Germans, and that the, the, the collapse of first Greek and then Roman civilization had been due to their, their corruption by the kind of cosmopolitan, cancerous teachings of Paul the, the Jew Paul, as he, as he put it. Um, so the, collapse, the, 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 the collapse of the Third Reich left Europe and America with a kind of stunned sense of, of what it was possible for a political regime to do. And it was so, it, it, it so shocked people's sense of what was right, that from that point on, in, in a sense, um, 
the Nazis replaced the demonology that Christianity had previously had. You know, you don't need the devil when you've got when you've got Hitler. And so what, what people have done since the Second World War, and I think it's really telling that, that church attendance um, in Europe certainly starts to really decline in the 60s when people begin to kind of process what had happened at, uh, under the Nazis and, and kind of proper understanding of the Holocaust and everything that that, that represented. Because um, if you want to know what is wrong, you look at the Nazis and, and, and you do the opposite. And I think that that remains, in a way, the most kind of vital moral tradition that, 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 that people have. Uh, it, it is, of course, ultimately a Christian one, because the reason that we find the Nazis morally offensive is for deeply Christian reasons. But in a sense, it's what Nietzsche talks about. You know, it's the shadow of the corpse of God, if you like, that we're seeing. Um, and I think that part of, of what's happening now is that um, that... Uh, the, 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 the kind of the rawness of what the Nazis did is starting to fade. People, you know, the generations that experience it are, are, are going. Um, and so it's just becoming history. And so I think the, the question for, for people in, in, in what was once Christendom is, you know, what, what, what will happen in the future? Is, is it the case, as most liberals think, that you don't need Christianity to be liberal? You know, Christianity may have provided the rocket blast, but we've kind of broken through the atmosphere and now liberalism can discard it and can just proceed through space and time without it. Or, um, as you imply, is, is it the case, was Nietzsche right? Ultimately, will these, these values without a theological grounding, without a grounding in scripture and an understanding of God wither and die? Or will there be a recognition of the fact that, that, that we do ultimately, things like human rights are, are theological values that are founded in Christian teachings and that ultimately we can't really have human rights without the faith that, that, that gave them birth. And I think that that is a question that, that will be increasingly forced on people on the West by the, by, by the retreat of Western power, because it's obvious that there are other cultural traditions who, who, for whom the notion of, say, of human rights are completely alien. Um, and, and so people in the West are, are going to have, ultimately have no choice but to recognise that their values are not universal. You know, they don't just exist. They're culturally contingent and they're bred specifically, I think, of Christianity. And therefore, perhaps there will be, you know, a, a, a return to the recognition that without Christianity, we can't really have the values. Because I guess no Nietzsche, one? Nietzsche, I mean, Nietzsche is interesting, isn't he? Because he... Um... He always drives me out of all the critics of Christianity, the one who understood it best, but actually just didn't like it. Yeah. He, he, he kind of, I think he says, he, um, you know, what is decisive against Christianity is not our reasons, but our taste. Um, you know, we, we don't reason against Christianity, we just don't like it. It's just, you know, it's, as you say, it's a sort of morality. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, he was a, a appalling hypochondriac and... <laughs> So, the idea that he would have survived a, a, a minute in Rome is hilarious. But. <laughs> but, the, um, but I suppose you know, if you see Nietzsche as a kind of a sort of revived paganism, if you like, you know, with, with all that, you know, you know, as we know, Wagner's interest in him and the gods and all everything else. But I suppose there is a thesis that, that, that actually there's the kind of great struggle between paganism and Christianity that you sort of write about in the in the book and you know as your interest in classical history sort of takes you right right into in some ways it's never I quite can't hear you Graham can you, you still can you still hear me yeah start yeah 
go back a bit yeah so um you know it's the um the, the the great struggle between christianity and paganism that you know you, you write about and you're fascinated by you know in your classical studies and somebody has never never gone away that actually that's always been the great polarity it's either between you know the god of jesus christ or you know you could expand that into a sort of monotheism more generally but um you know that or the nature worship of, of, of paganism and actually what you see over time is if you like you know the the, the the recurrence of paganism from time to time now whether that's in uh, the enlightenment itself again there's an interpretation of the enlightenment you, you know peter gay's three volume history of the enlightenment you know which, which talks about it as you know the rise of modern paganism uh you know you, you could see you know nietzsche as a sort of figure of, of of a sort of modern type of paganism you know paganism within nazism as as well there's the kind of sort of pagan under, underlay uh, there as well that, that basically you know, that's the, the ultimate polarity it's one or the other um what, what, what do you make of that sort of um reading of, of, of history I think Christianity is, is, has been far more triumphant yeah. because, because of course the very word paganism is a Christian invention. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know. Yeah. Pagans had no idea they were pagans until Christians told them they were. <laughs> um, and, and vice versa, I mean Christians were, well, was a, was a non-Christian term, wasn't it? Well, perhaps, but it's adopted, I mean it's adopted very, very early and certainly the, the sense, you know, Christian sense that there is something called Christianitas um, yeah. is certainly there from the second century onwards. And that idea that there is something called Christianity is kind of fundamental to, um, to Christians very, very early on. And so they construct various polarities for themselves, of which the obvious one is, is Judaism, or Judaism, as, as, as we might translate it, which Jews certainly don't use until the 19th century. They have no sense of, of, of themselves as belonging to something called Judaism, which is a kind of counterpart to Christianity. Uh, and likewise, pagan, paganism, pagans, kind, kind of comes in the 5th, 6th century. Th this is a Christian invention. And I, I think that, um, that, that, that Christianity saturates um, the Roman world and then the, the post-Roman world so utterly that um, the, the, the pagan gods kind of vanish. I mean, they're, they're kind of comical figures of, of mock epic or astrological symbols. Uh, they're, they're not real. Nobody can, can really believe in them. And when in the 20th century people, you know, try and, and, and resurrect something that they call paganism, um, and argue that this has been an underground tradition that's kind of you know it's there in the green men or whatever i mean this is this is wholly fantastical and the model of paganism that they construct is is patently modeled on christianity um it, I, I, and it's to that extent i think that it's almost impossible to escape christianity's hold i mean that's the kind of the radioactivity metaphor that you breathe it in and you, you can't just kind of get rid of it it's a part of you it's interesting uh, what Graham said about, you know, paganism being nature worshipping, because there's the famous quotation of Hitler, I do not see why humans should not be as cruel as nature. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense, I, I would add to your two doctrines that Nazism challenged of Christianity, the doctrine of the fall. Um, it's saying, no, the way things are is the way things should be, and we need to revel in it, we need to copy that, we need to share that kind of violence yeah whereas the doctor before said no it's not normal it's not the way things should be there's something more ultimate and ultimately peaceful and peace loving and yeah loving. I, 
I mean, I, th I think that um, I, I think that basically every kind of cultural and intellectual development in in, in Christendom and then what we might call the West um, since Constantine uh, essentially is 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 Christian. Um, but I think I think that Darwinism is is the great exception to that. Um, I, I really do think that, that, that Darwin, even though Darwin himself doesn't coin the phrase survival of the fittest, it's his cousin who does it. And it, it's telling that this comes to be adopted very, very quickly by a civilization that is desperate to be told this is true. Because at the time, um, Britain, America, Europe absolutely is the fittest. And um, Christianity kind of gets in the way of this. Um, so to be told that actually science, again, a, 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 a word that, that only takes on the meaning that it has for us now at around the same time, that science is telling you that um, the weak should be disposed of and the strong should prevail is tremendously useful for you know, people who want to conquer vast stretches of Africa or to exploit their workers or, or, or do whatever, or um, to, to, to go where Hitler goes and, and, and to argue that actually um, you know, there is no morality in nature. And I think that, that um, w one of the measures um, of, of just how Christian society we, we remain is how nervous we are of contemplating that, um, that nature can be, by our standards, cruel. Um, I, I, I've got a friend who... Um, has made a, a wonderful series of, of um, uh, films about um, nature that going out on uh, on BBC Four in the early evening, and they they're drawn from the BBC archives, and you have footage of of um, baby elephants or dolphins or or whatever, and it goes on for much longer than it would in a, a conventional nature film, um, and and you have a, a a guy who who is the kind of big spokesman for, for the notion of mindfulness intoning over it and saying that uh, nature teaches us that uh, joy is natural to all things. But, you know, the Neumann wasp is notable by its absence. <laughs> it's not there. Um, and I, th I, th I think the, 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 the kind of the, the implications that, that Darwin himself kind of, you know, had to force himself to, to, to stare at the implication that, 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 that a world that contains the Neumann wasp it's potentially a very frightening one and undermines doctrines that, that um, Darwin himself as, you know, as the heir of, of, of abolitionists held to very, very closely. Um, the, the implications of that, again, you know, we cannot bear too much reality. Um, people who, 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 who proudly proclaim themselves to be enthusiasts for the doctrine of evolution tend not to face up to the implications of what that would mean. And I would say that Dawkins is absolutely a, a paradigmatic example of that. Although he did on one occasion say, I do hope that we don't base our morality upon what we see in the evolutionary process, because it would but be- Yes, but why, but why is he saying that? Well, well what, upon what grounds is the question? Yes, right, you know, I mean- Yeah, what makes him say it? And uh, just to go back to um, something you were saying a moment ago, Tom, about, um, uh, the kind of loss of the doctrinal theological basis of the kind of values. And I suppose what's happened in the, the narrative you, you say, you know, so many of the ideas we take for granted, democracy, human rights, all those sort of things have effectively come from, um, you know, as a regard and care for the, for, for the poor in society. They all come from Christian 
um, in Christian roots, but have kind of been secularized over time. And I guess my question is what, what you feel has been lost in that secularization of essentially Christian ideas or Christian you know, things that have had a sort of Christian root? What, 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 has, what has been lost in that process of the, of the, um, the, the kind of evisceration of the, the theological grounding of it? I think, I mean, I think I, I'm speaking purely personally here. So, mm. you know, yeah. um, I, I, um, I think that uh, it, it's removed the sense of a solid foundation for what we believe as a society. Um, we, we, the sense I have at the moment is that as a society, we are, are, are kind of stumbling around in sinking sands, trying to find solid rock beneath us on which we can, can, can erect some kind of secure basis for, for, for what we instinctively believe. Mm. Um, and I think that essentially so much of what we believe requires a leap of faith, but we don't want to think that as a society. We want to assume that it's, you know, that it's just a given, that everyone can recognize it. Of course, our, you know, it's, it, that we should care for the, for the sick or the poor is a given. Uh, but ultimately, if the, to believe that it requires a leap of faith. And I, I think that, that we as a society are taking that leap of faith instinctively. We don't even realize that we're doing it. We just take it for granted. Um, and my personal feeling is having um, spent as long as I have done over the past few years, I mean, you know, I, <laughs> the, the kind of four years that I spent on this is as nothing compared to the lifetime that, that, that you've done researching theology. But I've, I found it eye-opening and humbling and inspirational to realize how, just how incredibly rich um, the Christian tradition explaining all these things is. Um, I, 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 you know, there, was, there was no period of Christianity that I was reading about that I didn't feel I, I, I am, my beliefs, by which I don't mean Christian beliefs, I mean my, my instinctive moral beliefs are being incredibly strengthened here. And, I, rec I recognize that this is where they come from. This is the kind of the, the foundation block. Um, what I also think, and this is something that was very sharpened for me by the experience of the lockdown, was that um, the church risks becoming a subdivision of the welfare state. But essentially, the welfare, the welfare state nationalized what the church had been doing in terms of hospitals and schools and welfare provision and so on. And um, the, the, the risk is, I think, that, that if the church talks only in terms of, um, you know, public health requirements or whatever, um, it, it's doing nothing that everybody else is, is, is doing. And ultimately what the church has to offer is the kind of strangeness, the oddness, the weirdness, the supernatural dimension that ultimately explains why this stuff is done, why people should care for the sick, why, you know, all that kind of, and, and really the only, the, the moment that, that crystallized that for me was watching, the, it was the one moment in the lockdown where I personally felt a kind of sense of, of, of incredible sense of, of uh, spiritual lightning, which was watching the Pope do a mass in St. Peter's Square on his own. And the bells of Rome were clanging and the sirens of ambulances were wailing. And there was an icon there that had come from Constantinople to Gregory the Great. 
that he, he went and, and, and prayed before. And Gregory the Great is in dominion. Uh, Gregory becomes Pope at a time of plague. And he goes out and he leads demonstrations, you know, he leads processions begging for mercy. Um, and it's it, the story ultimately, it's a much later story, but that, that St. Michael, um, the archangel appears and sheathes his sword. And this is a, a symbol that the plague will end. And that's on, on, on the top of Hadrian's tomb. Um, that's the famous statue that St. Michael sheathing his sword. Um, and Gregory in turn had, um, had, had, had written a famous commentary on, on the book of Job, which again is, is of course, in a way the profoundest, the most unsettling, and therefore in a way the most, I think, ironically comforting, <laughs> dare I use the word comfort in the context of Job, of, of all the books in the Bible that try to deal with this. Um, and I, I felt then this kind of, this, this melting away of the ages that I was watching the Pope on, you know, on a live feed. I, I was tra transported back to the, to the age of Gregory the Great and the experience of his generation of Romans of plague. And because of his meditations on Job, I was kind of felt that there was a direct link all the way back to that. And I thought that this, you know, there is, you know, what, a, what, what an astonishing institution the Christian church is. That, that it can, there is nothing quite like it for, 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 for making time seem to shrink and melt and dissolve and distort and fracture and, and kind of perhaps open up uh, a sense of, 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 of the eternal and the, the, these questions, these, these challenges, these problems are eternal. And um, the answers that the, the church gives are, of course, completely distinctive to itself. And my, my personal feeling, and I may be unfair here, was that um, by and large, um, th there wasn't an attempt to engage with that, that I was aware of. I'm sure it was going on, but, 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 but there, there's, there's the way in which in previous generations, the church would have been absolutely the forefront of explaining what was going on and of dealing with it, um, in a sense, because you know, in the hundred years since the last pandemic, um, the church has 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 had so many of its its functions nationalised. In a way, I think that that it just means that the, the the only way that the church can really get the nation's attention is to emphasise the things that that, that often many churches <laughs> seem slightly embarrassed about. You know, all the stuff about why God sends plague and does He send plague and what are well, the angels doing and all that kind of stuff which is why some of the ways in which the church has explained what's going on in the past have been deeply unhelpful. Well, quite, but I'd like to, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it's those, those explanations and the difficulty of explaining it, you're, you're going kind of to the heart of, of what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting. And I think again, suggests how much we don't as a society know what, where our moorings are anymore is that, um, it doesn't seem to have occurred to major um, news outlets to ask the church a uh, hundred years ago that that's what you would have done. You would have said to the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope, why is this happening? What do we do? And that uh, that doesn't seem to be a dimension of how we deal with these things anymore. So I, I think for, for, for us as, as members of the church, trying to work out how we engage then, if, if nobody's going to come and ask us what the right answer is anymore, mm. 
or how to think about this? How do we start to engage again? Um, I, I think I think I think by emphasising um, not what is familiar about the Christian message, but what is unfamiliar, mm. because I think I think that you know Christianity in a way is a victim of its own success. Its 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 teachings, its its practices, its doctrines, its assumptions have been so internalised that people don't recognize where they come from and therefore feel that they don't need the um the theological moorings that the, the, the church has provided um so i think that rather counter you know rather counterintuitively in this skeptical age i, I personally think that the the answer is to emphasize um everything that that is likely to strike um the average skeptic as most implausible because ultimately um you know if if if, if the weirdness that the, the that scripture and um, the, the great inheritance of Christian writings is not true, then none of it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the strangeness at the heart of it is, is kind of what it's all about, ultimately. Uh, and I think that if the strangeness is downplayed, then the risk for the church is, as I say, that it just becomes a kind of branch office of the welfare state, because it's just... You know, it's, it's everything that it does is is so valuable. All the the food banks and the the the, the charitable giving and everything. I mean, it's completely. You know that, that that is what provides the you know the inspiration for the welfare state. But because the welfare state exists, the distinctiveness of it as something specifically Christian has been diminished. So there needs to be an emphasis on why. Yeah why the church is doing this. What is it about the understanding of, of the universe, the cosmos, and humanity's relationship to that cosmos that explains why this should be done? And ultimately, the, you know, the reasons for that are, are kind of rooted in the supernatural. The, um, yeah, the, the strangeness becomes familiar. And in the attempt to try to kind of make Christianity somehow believable, uh, it's that old, you know, attempt to kind of shoot, to, you know, to kind of shear off of from Christianity anything that seems to be unbelievable in, in the terms of the, the world in which it's placed. I'm reminded of that little, well, by I think William William on the American theologian, you know, the gospel is weird, and if you follow it, you will be weird also. And um, yeah, there's a, sometimes an unwillingness to be that weird, if you like. And um, not for me. Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty weird, Michael. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And I suppose, I mean, Tom, I mean, what I think, you know, you've helped us see both in the book and in the conversation today is uh, maybe, you know, coming at it from, you know, your background in sort of, you know, as a historian, classical studies uh, and coming to this in some ways sort of fresh, you know, if you like, from the, from, if you like, outside the church, actually, you know, it helps to see the strangeness of it, that sometimes those of us inside it don't always see. And you've, you've really helped us to see that, I think, today. And given us a real challenge as theologians, you've given us back our jobs. Yes. I, th I mean, I think I think that I am kind of looking through the telescope the wrong way, or, or kind of an unusual way. And I, I thought that during the Me Too movement, that I'd just come, I, I'd, I'd been writing a book about the Julia Claudians, so immersing myself in in um, essentially the kind of the Roman understanding, at least the elite Roman understanding of, of sexual relations, which is one that that, that regards um, the bodies of those who are not um, male citizens. Mm. essentially as objects to be used by the male citizen as, as, as he wishes. Um, and that is basically the assumption that underpins 
you know, the, say the love poetry of Catullus. I mean, that's why it, it, it's much more alien than I initially appreciated. Um, and I thought that what was interesting about me too was was the the kind of near universal assumption that that um, you know, for a powerful man to uh, use his position to have his way with his inferiors was was indeed morally wrong. Mm. A, a Roman would not have thought that. Mm. A Roman would have had no problem with it whatsoever. And so the fact that societally we basically all accepted that um, that that, that uh, a powerful man abusing his position in that way was indeed abuse is testimony to how, despite the sexual revolution, despite all the changes in in sexual morality since the sixties fundamentally we remain deeply pauline in our understanding about what a what a sexual body is what 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 what, what relate proper relations between the sexes should be um and i i think that the the, the value of that for me writing dominion was that i, I in a, in a sense i was more familiar with with the kind of the morality of the romans than i was with contemporary morality which i hadn't remotely studied and so, in a sense, contemporary morality was likely to seem stranger to me than Roman morality after four years of immersing myself in it. And I, I think that perhaps that was um, that was a um, that was kind of a sense that 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 was with me very strongly writing about uh, writing the opening chapters of Dominion was, was thinking about um, the classical world and then thinking about the world of the contemporary and and how it's the contemporary world that is strange, not the classical world. And I wonder if at the heart of that shift is not worshipping that which has given up power, the doctrine of the incarnation. Um, because if you take as granted that the power gives you rights over everything else, um, that's going to lead to the kind of Roman conception of sexuality and everything else. Yeah. Um, whereas if you think that God is a God who gives up power for the sake of the powerless that yeah. gives you a very different vision but i think that that is also a problem for christianity at the moment is is, is again that, that as a society and particularly in the wake of nazism we've in, we again we have internalized this idea so profoundly that christianity's very influence it's it, it, it's very hegemony has become problematic for highly christian reasons so people have turned against christianity because they think that christianity is too powerful but they think that that's a problem because they're Christian. And essentially the whole, you know, there was, there was, not, a pe there was not a moment where I was writing this book where I didn't think everything basically is one enormous paradox. <laughs> you know, the whole of Christianity is founded on paradox. <laughs> and, and the effects of that, it's like a, you know, it's, a, it's like kind of, um, I think in, in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I may have got this wrong, there was a kind of spaceship that was powered by paradox. And I kind of slightly feel that Christianity, you know, Christianity is, 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 is a spaceship powered by, by paradox. Um, and it kind of, it, it ripples out into society, generating paradoxes in turn. Tom, you've, um, it's been a fascinating discussion. We, we could go on on this, there's so many lines of um, conversation which could continue for hours to come, but we never have hours on, on uh, Godpod. In fact, this one's been a little bit longer than our normal one because the conversation's been so fascinating. So, um, Tom, we were really grateful to you for coming on and um, uh, it's a really fascinating read. If you've uh, not read it, uh, you may want to buy your copy as a result of listening to this um, conversation. It's uh, called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind by Tom Holland, and it's published by, I should see, um, where are we now? Hang on, I should see it. Uh, it Little uh, and Brown. Uh, but uh, I'm happy to say the paperback is now out. And that's oh, very good. Even cheaper. 
Very good. So get down to your, well, you probably can't go to bookshops these days, but find some way of getting hold of the book because it's really well worth reading. Anyway, um, thank you so much, Tom and uh, Jane and Michael. Thank you. Very, very good to be with you. Thank you. It's been great to be together again, and uh, we'll be back with another God Pod before too long. So uh, goodbye from all of us. That was God Pod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.